Talking Animals on WMNF. Before I go any further, I want to thank Bev Capshaw, who did a typically stellar job sitting in for me last Wednesday. As for today's show, my guest is Patrick Craig, the founder of the Wild Animal Sanctuary, located in Keensburg, Colorado, which builds itself as the largest and oldest accredited sanctuary for carnivores in the Western Hemisphere. The facility involves multiple sites, collectively spanning more than 10,000 acres. Craig founded the sanctuary in 1980 when he was a mere 19 years old. Now, in 2020, the Wild Animal Sanctuary hosts more than 500 rescued lions, bears, tigers, including 39 tigers that Craig took in from the Tiger King Joe Exotic so-called zoo. We'll discuss these things and more, including an innovation whereby visitors can use a walkway elevated well above the grounds, allowing visitors to see the animals without disturbing them. When I speak with Patrick Craig in just a moment here on Talking Animals on WMNF. Later in the program, I'll speak with Karen Ankerstar, whose advocacy in recent years has tended to give legal teeth to the Adopt, Don't Shop slogan as she's worked to help pass ordinances prohibiting pet stores from selling dogs that came from puppy mills and other nefarious breeders. She'll underscore her central message about not buying pets and possibly offer a cautionary tale about what can happen when someone ignores that guidance. Right now, though, let's talk lions and tigers and bears and more with Patrick with a reminder that I invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663, emailing dj at wmnf.org, or texting 813-433-0885. This is Patrick Craig on Talking Animals on WMNF. Good morning, Pat. Good morning. Thank you for having me on. Oh, absolutely. Thanks for joining us on Talking Animals. There's so much ground I hope to cover about the Wild Animal Sanctuary and related topics, but I think we're almost required in this instance, especially, to start at the beginning, by which I'm referring here to your launching the sanctuary when you were 19. When I was 19, I was like a shiftless, fairly irresponsible college kid who barely made it to class on time. How was it at that age that you knew you wanted to start an animal sanctuary, a hugely challenging undertaking uh even under the best of circumstances it's <laughs> a good question <clears throat> um probably can chalk it up to being really naive i guess um it wasn't something that i grew up wanting to do or even thought of doing i loved animals and grew up on a farm and you know always wanted to, to continue being around animals but you know 40 years ago there were very few careers that had anything to do with that other than you know being a zookeeper or working in a circus or you know, some domestic pet facility or whatever. And so my goal was more or less to get a degree in business and then be able to still continue to live on a farm and have animals and work with animals that way, not necessarily as a career. But just by chance, I happened to get a tour behind the scenes of the zoo that a friend of mine from high school had gotten a job as a groundskeeper. And so I was kind of 
um, just caught off guard when he gave me a tour behind the scenes just to kind of see what was going on. And there were all these lions and tigers in small cages in the back that the public didn't see. And, and I was kind of caught by surprise that there were these, you know, majestic lions and tigers in perfectly good health that were just locked up in cages. And so it caught me by surprise. And, and by one turn of events to another, I just eventually... Um, found that they were euthanizing these animals on a regular basis throughout the zoo system and thought that was crazy that, you know, such majestic creatures were not only being more or less abused by being locked up like that, but also being euthanized. And so um, I ended up thinking, like most people, I'll make a few phone calls and solve the problem that way, which was, again, very naive on my part to think that it was that easy to do. But when I found out that there was no way to stop that kind of practice and there was no other... Uh, main society in the country that would take in lions and tigers. I contacted this, the state and federal government to get what it would take to do for licensing to, to build a facility on that farm that I was, grew up on, and luckily I had the land and the buildings to do that. And so I started um, by just getting licensing and changing the zoning and doing everything first before I ever took in any animal. And so it was something that I fell into kind of backwards. Yeah, well, there's a couple of things I, I want to further explore with you. I mean, first of all, once you got the land and the zoning fixed up, of course, we want you to pick up the story from there. But one thing that, uh, just as a little side note, but really not that little because it's so significant because it's really, for people who are not necessarily anti-zoo and, and maybe actually pro-zoo or, or regularly visit zoos, probably don't know that, that some of the thing you alluded to is that zoos often have this whole other whatever you think about captivity and animals living that way whatever uh, setting that aside for a sec there is this whole other dark practice of animals that either are too old or for one reason or another are no longer of use to that zoo so they either trade them to another zoo that may have need for that particular animal or as you had noted, that they're just euthanized, and uh, right. maybe you could speak to that practice a little bit, just because I think that's uh, yeah. one of the many sort of dirty little secrets of the uh, captivity industry. Yeah, early on when I got involved with this, I was, you know, dumbfounded that there were even surplus animals to begin with, and uh, but it, over a certain amount of time, it became pretty evident that what was happening was in the early 1900s, most zoos, you know, took animals from the wild and had them shipped to them, and, and they would try to house them properly and care for them and hopefully breed them. But most of them, you know, were traumatized by moving and either passed away coming to the to the United States or got to the zoos and then didn't live very long because of the stress of being in captivity, um, especially being caught from the wild. But eventually, you know, there was enough that were born in captivity um, that they actually grew up and were more comfortable and started to reproduce. So by the late you know, 1950s, early 1960s, um, most zoos had animals that were now reproducing instead of just always having to get new ones from the wild. And, um, and so every zoo always had a nursery, but it was more or less, you know, somebody's office or some back room and nothing official because up until then there really wasn't a, a, a production of this kind of um, level. But eventually one zoo, and I don't even know who it was, put a window and the public got to see the baby animals. Whenever they had a baby, they would look through the window and they loved it. So immediately that became the number one attraction. And then every zoo started to follow suit. And then eventually, even like here in Colorado, the Denver Zoo built a dedicated nursery. It was like a big round building that had windows all the way around so that people could come and see all the babies. And so that basically spurred 
um, a ton of attendance for every zoo, and they realized that was their number one attraction, and so they needed to start breeding and having more and more babies because every time somebody would come and there was no baby in the nursery, they, they'd complain and, you know, I said, where's the babies? Where's the babies? Mm. So, you know, over about a 10, 15-year period, zoos were cranking out babies like crazy, lions, tigers, bears, all these little cute, fuzzy animals that were going to be in the nursery, and and that's what really created a giant amount of surplus in the United States. Because up until then, you know, if a, a zoo had some babies, they would. There was always another zoo somewhere in Nebraska or Kansas that was starting up that would take them. But once they all started to breed at that level, there were just so many. Yeah. Most of them were just overproducing, and there wasn't enough space in the zoo system for all those babies. So unfortunately, then that at that point, when when all those zoos are, are tapped out, then it's like we got no place for these animals to go and so that's when they meet their dark fate often yeah and it just was really odd that i kind of fell into it right about the peak of that period um because that zoo that i visited first time was that way and so when i came back to colorado and kept thinking about those animals and i was making phone calls and i even called the denver zoo and you know said hey can't you're one of the biggest zoos in the country can't you take those animals that that zoo has and at that time, they said, no, we have two tigers out front. We have seven in the back right now. And so, you know, it was really a huge problem across the board. All the big zoos and the small zoos had the, the surplus problem. So let's kind of swing back around to the beginning part of your story. So you had this glimpse backstage and, and you were bothered about it. And as you said, you were fortunate enough, I guess, to have access to land in a situation where you could do something about it again still you're still 19 at this point or <laughs> yeah okay yeah, I actually yeah i started i visited the zoo when i was 18 but and then i quickly you know started to try and solve the problem and, and it just kept bugging me i kept thinking and you know i don't want to be one of the people that walked by those animals and said geez that's a shame somebody ought to do something about that yeah and not so be maybe the was, person yeah. yeah yeah i figured there might have been a hundred other people that maybe saw the same thing and thought the same thing, but really didn't do anything. And so it really was what motivated me the most was it just kept bugging me that they were just sitting there and nobody, you know, was championing their their lives and their situation. So that's what really drove me. And of course, like you said, having land, um, buildings, and, and that kind of thing, I couldn't afford that at 19. So I was very fortunate that my family had the farm and the land and that kind of thing. So I basically, when I found out there was nowhere for these animals to go and there were no humanities and nobody wanted them. Um, and I got in contact with the USDA and the Colorado Division of Wildlife, and they said, well, you meet the standards and the regulations, then, yeah, you can you can take them in. And I thought, okay, so send me the regulations. And after I read all the, the criteria and everything else, I built a very small you know, facility for about a dozen animals and based on you know the, the animals that I saw, the large carnivores. And um, so once I was licensed, as a, just like a zoo or anybody else, I sent a letter to every zoo in the country. And I said, I know you have surplus, but if you're going to euthanize something, maybe I can help. And I you know, really didn't know how big the problem was in those, that first year. And I got over 300 responses in the first month. Oh, my goodness. And back then, I didn't have, you know, we didn't have cell phones. I didn't have a fax machine. So our mailbox was just stuffed with letter after letter daily from zoos all across the country that said, here's our animals that we're planning to euthanize. And um, so for about two or three weeks, I almost didn't do it because I was like, well, I'm not even going to make a dent. This is huge. This is much bigger than I even thought. Yeah. It just kept bugging me, and I thought, well, you know, if I if I save one, that's better than none, and two is better than one, and hopefully other people will do the same thing, and, you know, all you can do is do what one person can do. And so I started driving all over the country, picking up animals and, and 
bringing them back and building more cages at the time and, and you know, expanding the facility. And so I was going to college and see you in Boulder at the time, and I had to drop out because I was working full-time job to help support the animals and and pay for gas and caging and everything else and driving all over the country. And um, So that was wow. the early years. It was, it was almost like um, I liken it to having children. Once you have them, they're there forever, and so you're, you're in it. Right. And then, you know, at that point I knew I was tied up for the for at least the next 20 years or 30 years with the animals that I had. And, and then every time you rescue a new one, that's another 20-year contract. And so that was the beginning. Wow. This raises a handful of other questions, Pat, including looking back, I mean, you obviously grew up on a farm, so it sounds like you were connected to or sympathetic to animals kind of just fundamentally. But was there something else you could point to in your formative years that you developed what sounds like just an unusual or sort of precocious compassion and empathy where, again, you were struck by that backstage glimpse at the zoo and especially at 19 to say hey other people may have seen this or known about this but everybody should said hey we, i should do something yeah. about this but you actually did looking back what was it that prompted you to actually do that and have enough again com- compassion or, or empathy to say i got to help these animals right i appreciate the question um there was a couple things one was my father um, and mother both grew up on farms and so that's why they had purchased the farm outside of boulder they wanted their kids to grow up on a farm and have that appreciation for animals and and you know i was a typical young boy that you know like mechanical things in cars and whatever but my my sister and my whole family um, really enjoyed animals and that really ingrained that into me at an early age about how much to appreciate them and care for them and, and understand that you know that they depend on us as humans if we, if we sign on to take care of them then it's our job to do that and but my father also <clears throat> had his own businesses and so he was a, a pretty strict father that you know we worked starting from when I was nine years old I'd work all summer and on weekends and during school year and, and so did my brother and sister and so by the time I was 16 or 17 I felt like it had already had a, a you know eight nine year career in, in working and so by the time this came around, most of my friends were first getting their first job, and I felt like I needed to retire by that time because yeah. I already worked so much as a kid. For sure. So I was a lot more confident and a lot more skilled and a lot more um, in tune with what group, the gravity of what I was taking on than probably, like you said, most people at 19. Yeah. But it was really due to my father's upbringing and, and also the combination of living on the farm and really loving animals that way. Well, another question, which you've already kind of answered in a sense, because I would have thought when you've contacted all those zoos across the country, at least I would have wondered if some would have said, hey, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, we don't have surplus. And I'm like, sort of like <laughs> denying that that issue even existed. Yeah. But it sounds like yeah. they were so happy with this possible opportunity to unload them in a way that might be was easier on their conscience um, right. that they did respond or didn't try to pretend yeah. that it didn't exist that way. Yeah, I mean, that is the culture today. If you if you ask me in the last you know, 10 years or 20 years, but Back then, I was. I think one of the first things that struck me was how many zoos, and these are city-owned big zoos, didn't have full-time vets back then. Yeah. And how many of them relied still on volunteers and interns. And I mean, it was amazing um, because when I did come back um, and I was thinking about these animals and trying to solve the problem, and I called the Denver Zoo. I went down and actually met the keeper at the time, and he took me in the back and showed me the two tigers out front and the seven in the back. And, and I was blown away that, that there was just this, not as professional. I wouldn't. I hate to say they're not professional, but back then I would have assumed they probably had a big hospital like they do today, and and 20 vets on staff. And you know, I just remember back then thinking, wow, 
you know, this is not as formal as I thought it was. And, and everybody that I met was in the same boat I was in. Every care, every keeper was, was tortured by the thought that these animals were stuck in these small cages or that they'd be euthanized. And so the very first few weeks that I told you I was debating whether I should even get involved, yeah. the very first call I got was a young girl crying on the phone and she was, you know, really upset. And she said, I'm just an intern here. We don't have a full-time vet and these animals are dying and, and I feel terrible and, and you got to help. And you know, so that was one of the things that early on really caught me by surprise was how desperate even they were um, to, to try and find a, a solution. It wasn't like they were complacent and, and going, yeah, this is what we do or anything. Everybody was tormented by that thought back then. And um, so it is a different culture. It was definitely back then. And, and today, yeah, most zoos wouldn't want to talk about surplus or, or any of the breeding. Right. right. Kind of Acknowledge like that it even exists probably. Right. Yeah. 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 So here's another thing. And so you do, after you grapple with this, you do decide that you're going to help and then you start driving around the country. So here's another thing is, okay, so you've grown up with animals, but I'm going to guess more horses, cows, animals of that kind. Suddenly you're driving around picking up uh, carnivores. I mean, A, were you just sort of self-taught or just learning as you went? And B, although you mentioned you had kind of a flair for mechanical things, so I assume you probably just built enclosures that you could take on the road or something that were safe and, and could hold the animals yeah. you're picking up. But still, there are a certain uh, set of uh, characteristics and things, obviously, that go with carnivores that I would think would be kind of a big leap from uh, looking after the cows yeah. and the horses and stuff. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Now, again, going back to how naive I was back then, the very first um, mountain lion, which was like the second or third animal I rescued, was in Farmington, Utah, at the uh, amusement park there. It's, uh, I forget the name of it, but it's... Uh, it's still in operation and, and still contentious about their animals, but they had a, a Native American exhibit and it had a train that went through it and they decided to shut it down and build more amusement park stuff there. And so they were getting rid of the mountain lion and the bear and the whatever else was in there and they had some hoof stock. And so they'd gotten homes for everything but the mountain lion and nobody would take it. And so they called me and they were desperate. They said, we're going to euthanize it. And I said, okay, I'll come get it. And I drove up there and I had a cage on the back of an old Chevy pickup. I mean, this was, you know, again, that was low budget back then, obviously. And yeah. And uh, I pulled up, and there was no transport cage or anything. It was just the cage on the truck. And backed up to the cage where the mountain lion was, and they said, okay, well, where's your transport cage? And I said, don't have one. I said, that's the cage. And they said, well, how are you going to get the mountain lion in there? I said, well, I'm just going to go in and get it. So I walked in the cage and grabbed the mountain lion, and I knew it wasn't like that stupid. I knew I was going to get, you know, bit and, and more or less get a rejection from the mountain lion. But yeah. I went in and cornered her, grabbed her, and she immediately, you know, was biting and scratching me. And I walked over and put her into the truck and closed the gate. And um, at the time, my girlfriend had gone with me to drive, to help drive. And of course, you know, I was kind of tore up. And, and um, I just told my girlfriend, you drive and I'm going to get in the back and just keep her calm because she was pretty obviously upset. So I got in the back of the cage and we started driving back to Colorado. And, and the whole time, the mountain lion was pinned to the front of the back of the cab and scared and you could see her and look at her eyes she was terrified didn't know what was going on and and this was you know something that i was learning early on about the, the trauma involved in with rescuing animals and what they have to go through to transition from where they were to coming to our sanctuary and that kind of thing but i just knew it was the right thing to do to not just put her in the back and then start driving yeah because um, she would have just really been upset just even if i was even if i was the uh, the enemy i was at least somebody there with her and i after a few hours, I remember I was tired because I drove straight through the night to get there. I, I 
just laid down and went to sleep. And then about an hour, I woke up and she was curled up next to me. And wow. of course, I was kind of terrified to move because I thought, you know, I was pretty sore at that point after the first round of bites and scratches. And I thought, geez, if I move, she's going to tear me up again. But she didn't. I just laid there. And so the whole way back to Colorado, she just laid there with me. And when we got to Colorado, she allowed me to pick her up and put her into the, the cage we had. And and so I learned a lot over those first few years of, of how they see these people coming to get them and yeah. how they're experiencing, you know, that, that whole thing of moving and you know, so I was just stupid. I could have easily died. I mean, obviously, I, I admit how terrible that was, but but it, it was a gut feeling that I had. It was the right thing to do, and it worked out, and um, I did many other things like that over the uh, first 10 or 20 years of working with these animals was, you know, trying to put myself in a position where it helped them more than it helped me. Yeah, well, it sounds like some of it was, again, growing up on a farm and where sometimes it's like, Hey, this just needs to be done. Whatever it takes, just get it done. So it sounds like sort of there was that kind of spirit coupled with having a real connection with animals to begin with. And you're just like, hey, I don't have any other cage, the enclosure. This mountain lion needs to get in here so we can go help it. But it's just, it's also amazing that just by instinct, I guess, despite the obvious danger that you got back in the enclosure after being torn up for the ride because you knew uh, the animal was so terrified and yet you were putting yourself obviously at tremendous risk. So uh, there's a bunch of things that are pretty, uh, pretty amazing about just like, I guess something to be said for like not knowing enough to not not to do certain things, I guess, early on. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I don't think I would have done it with a full grown tiger or lion, but I felt like I I might actually survive if I went in with a mountain lion. Yeah. This is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. If you just tuned in, my guest is Patrick Craig, founder of the Wild Animal Sanctuary, a sprawling facility in Colorado. He founded it as a 19-year-old. Now, 40 uh, years later, the sanctuary houses more than 500 rescued lions, bears, tigers, um, including 39 tigers, actually, that Craig took in from the so-called zoo belonging to Joe Exotic, a.k.a. the Tiger King. If you'd like to ask Patrick a question or offer a comment, please call 813-239-9663. Email dj at WMNF. WMNF.org or text 813-433-0885. So, Patrick, there are multiple ways in which the Wild Animal Sanctuary is distinctive, starting perhaps with the sheer size of the place. I mean, the facility, near as I can tell, just absolutely dwarfs just about any other sanctuary I'm aware of. Now, as I understand it, the monumental size didn't evolve over time so much as kind of there was a dramatic surge in, in recent years. Can you talk about how the sanctuary's growth and, and that sprawling size and what that's meant really for fulfilling your mission? Yeah, absolutely. Um, early on, uh, one of the things that really drove me nuts was when I would rescue an animal and bring him there to the facility in Colorado and stick him in a small cage, I kind of was like, well, this is silly because it's just like taking an animal from one maximum security to another. So I saved its life, but I didn't really change any quality of life. And so I remember early on just being tormented by that. I'm thinking, okay. But back then, the, all the USDA regulations and everything required concrete floors, you know, chain link, solid roof. There was no open habitats. There, you know, there was no uh, no allowance for that. And, I, and it drove me nuts because in that first year, as I took in animals and they were sitting in these cages, I thought, well, this is not cool. And, and of course, the USDA said, no, you can't build these big spaces because they'll escape. And, and so the caveat was you could, as a, let's say you were in circus, you could take an animal out and work it um, outside of its cage for its act. Or if you were in Hollywood, you could take an animal like a lion and put him on a movie set. So there was leeway there for me to every day to let the animals out of their cages as long as they went back there and spent the night. So I fenced 
the farm, um, which wasn't huge. It was only like 20 acres, 15, 20 acres. And, and I fenced the entire perimeter. And so every day I would take turns letting the animals out and just roaming freely. Of course, we didn't have any more cows and horses at the time because it wasn't going to work very well. But yeah. um, anyway, they roamed and, I, and, I, and everyone was amazing because the first thing I thought was, well, geez, if you let them loose, how are you going to get them back in? And I realized really quickly that, you know, they've grown up in captivity their whole life. And so that cage is a lot like dogs that have been, you know, kenneled from puppies. Um, they use it as their security blanket. And so they loved going out and running around the farm for an hour or two. But when they got tired, they didn't feel comfortable sleeping out in the open because they weren't sure if another tiger or lion would come along and, and accost them while they were sleeping. So they would actually come back and go in their cage and basically look at me like, close the door so that I'm safe. And I would mm-hmm. close the door and they'd lay down and go to sleep and I'd open the door and let the next ones out for a couple hours. And and so early on, I, I was able to find a way to bridge the gap of not keeping them locked up 24-7, but yet the rules and the regulations wouldn't let me do it, you know, to where they could just stay out in a habitat. And so all the way up until we moved to where we currently are outside of Kenisburg, um, I constantly fought with the USDA and the Division of Wildlife to try and get the rules changed and the regulations changed. And so we moved out here 26 years ago, and when we did, I'd had enough years of letting them out and, and walking and free walking and staying out and all that to prove to the Division of Wildlife and the USDA that, look, these animals have no intention of escaping at all. They, they love being in a big open space. Once they own that space, you know, they actually are afraid to go anywhere else, so they have no desire to just try to jump a fence and go somewhere. They're terrified of doing that. And so the USDA and the Division of Wildlife agreed to have people, a group of uh, experts come from zoos around the country and from drive through parks and came to Denver. And I had to present to them my concept of building habitats and letting the animals stay out there permanently. And so then the, that group came out here and toured the facility. And, and once they realized that, you know, it's all about the psychology behind the animals, not the physical restraint. And so we wouldn't take a brand new rescued animal and stick them in a habitat because they'd be terrified. They wouldn't know that they're safe or anything. And they'd run around and just be, you know, scared to death. So we have a system of starting them in a small cage like they come from and then gradually growing that space until they're finally in a big habitat where they feel totally safe and comfortable and they know that they own that space. So there was this progression of getting that way. And so um, 20, um, 26 years ago, we were able to get the regulations changed to allow for large habitats um, based on, you know, a number of criteria of like having electrified fences and some stuff that made the, the committee feel safe um, and other the public feel safe but truly it's really about the psychology of the animal being perfectly comfortable and feeling safe in their habitat and, and they have no desire whatsoever to leave it so that was a giant shift in our ability to, to then offer so that every animal doesn't have to stay in a cage and take turns going out they could actually just live in a habitat and so that was the impetus of trying to buy land outside of Denver and where we are now, um, 26 years ago, was just an ocean of wheat. There was no houses or fences or power lines or anything out here. So for the first six months, we used generators and cell phones and built this, started building this facility that exists today um, with large acreage habitats that range anywhere from five acres to 25 acres um, here in Kenisburg. And obviously, we might talk about the refuge in a little while, but, but here in Kenisburg, they range from five to 25 acres. And... So that was a big part of the shift in, in the beginning, and then the part that you're referring to in our growth in general, especially with budgets and, and staff and, and the number of animals that we can potentially rescue. Um, one of the things that happened was 
back in 9-11 in 2001, I think it was, that, you know, pretty much every nonprofit in the country saw a giant dip in donations when, when people were really upset about the Twin Towers. And then right after that, there was a tsunami um, in Asia, Southeast Asia, that people gave to. And then there was Hurricane Katrina. And so one after another, there were these giant monumental national and international catastrophes. In a, and as a small nonprofit, we had normally had very normal and very consistent support. And all of a sudden, we were starting to see people go away for six months at a time, especially like Hurricane Katrina, where people were donating to that for almost a year straight. And it was in the news every night. And so there were one hit after another. We kept you know, using our reserves to get through each time there was some sort of monumental catastrophe that people gave to. And, and we got to the point where we almost closed. We just ran out of money. I borrowed over $250,000 personally to keep the place going after Hurricane Katrina. And, and it just was crazy how people still loved the sanctuary and still wanted to support it. But every night they'd watch the news and see some sad story and then they'd donate to that and forget to get to us. And so we realized real quickly that we had to change our funding uh, you know, 100% in a different direction. And so at that time, I realized, okay, there's no more grassroots nonprofit. It's got to be more of a business, and I've got to market this, and I've got to be able to get people to sign up for donation um, adoptions and pledges and mm-hmm. things that would be automatic to where, you know, if there is another giant catastrophe, then our, their donation to us is still coming out automatically so that they just don't forget. And so there was a, a myriad of things that we changed 17 years ago to um, respond to that new realm of fundraising and the new realm of how nonprofits existed with other catastrophes in the world. And so it did make a giant difference for us. And um, we started to be able to bring in more consistent funding and be able to buy more land and and grow more here and, and help more animals. And so, if I'm, I got this right, cumulatively, I think there's maybe a few different spots where this figures into this. But you got over ten thousand acres all told for the animals. Yeah. So uh, initially, it was all about growing here in Kingsburg, and we were since we started 26 years ago, it was all wheat fields. You know, the farmers were more than happy to sell land to us every time we had enough extra funds to to buy more space and build more habitats and yeah but uh, we knew over time that that was going to eventually we would get surrounded by houses and development would eventually you know uh, landlock us and that's what happened in 2017 we finally became landlocked by development around us and there's a lot of oil and gas exploration exploration in the area so we couldn't buy any more land and and yet there's you know still a myriad of animals out there that are suffering and dying and with a lot of the national organizations like ALDF and PETA and everybody else who are trying to help a lot of these animals, there's more animals in need now than than ever. So we were trying to, to be responsible and help meet some of that demand, and but we ran out of space. And so at that time, it was either stop rescuing animals and just care for the ones that are here or try to find a solution where we could continue them to grow as we were getting more funding and more support. Um, so we were fortunate to find uh, 9,684 acres in southern Colorado that's all forested, um, and we purchased that in, in uh, February of 2018 and started to build what we call the Wild Animal Refuge. Wow. So that's a huge, wherever you were acreage-wise before, that's a, obviously a gigantic amount of space. Yeah. So yeah, we, were, we were just under 800 acres here in Kenisburg, and... And then we jumped from 800 to, um, combined, it was over 10,000 acres. Yeah. Well, so, oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, the main thing was we've always strived to make our habitats as natural as possible. And here in Kenisburg, it's in the the grasslands and the front plains of, of the front range of Colorado. So 
the farmers don't like trees. They would they wanted to grow wheat, so they would always plow trees under. And there isn't that much rainfall here, so when you do plant a tree, it grows very slowly. And so we were always working hard to plant trees here in Kenisburg and add water and try to embellish the habitats, you know, because they had large acres of Roman grasslands that they could go through. So the African lions looked like they were right at home. But, you know, for the tigers and everybody else, we wanted to obviously be um, more trees and grass and, and ponds and things like that. And so one of the things that we had always swore to do was if we ever did move or did buy other land, that we would look for forested land with a lot of topography and a lot of... Um, enrichment type items that would be natural you know amenities to the land and so when we were looking for land that was one of the biggest criteria was to find something that was far more natural even than what we already had um, which was a giant improvement from any you know any captive situation but but going that much further to find forested land in southern Colorado where the animals could have you know 100 or 200 or 300 acre habitats would be about as close to being back in the wild as they could ever be yeah wow well that's amazing i mean again you ended up with this plot of nine nine thousand uh, acres that uh, just obviously changed everything so i've got all kinds of questions and we've got some email sure. questions we've got a call holding in fact when, speaking of the funding this might be a time to ask a question that came in a little bit ago about email it says patrick is an amazing compassionate human being how in the world did he pay for the transport and care of the animals at such young age just came in when you were describing kind of your early earliest efforts right. to kind of get things launched yeah well i was working jobs like i said i had to drop out of college and i was already putting myself through school anyway my father died when i was 16 and so i was working just to put myself through college but when i dropped out then i worked two jobs to help support the animals and so i would work all day and then come home at night and work from about six till midnight feeding and cleaning and and then get up and go to work and work a you know eight to ten hour day and then come home and do it again and so in those early years it was working one or two jobs or as many jobs as i could do and to try and fund the food and the cages and the transport and everything that was going on i didn't really look at it as anybody else's responsibility so i wasn't out actively fundraising or asking for donations or anything because it was my i figured that i was the one who was crazy enough to take this on i yeah. was the one responsible for paying for it and so for the first 18 years i worked jobs um, to keep the place going and fund it and and also still take care of the animals. And eventually people, you know, started to say, hey, I'll come over and help on a weekend or I'll give you 10 bucks or I'll do whatever. And yeah. so even though I set it up as a nonprofit early on, I wasn't really marketing it at all. Right. Um, so just by, you know, osmosis, people were like, hey, I think what you're doing is great. I'd like to help. And so they started to donate and, you know, and, and volunteer and um so really, it was one of those things where, you know, I didn't approach it at all like somebody might start a nonprofit today. Yeah. Um, I approached it more as a, just a private thing that I was, uh, you know, my own personal war on trying to help animals. Well, it sounds like a, it was a huge mission that you felt like a real calling for when you first visited that one, that, that initial zoo where you got yeah. that look behind and you said, hey, I've got to do something. And then you just kept going until other people yeah. did start helping or contributing or whatever. Yeah. So, yeah. okay. I, I did actually have a family. So sorry to add on to that, but I, everybody I ever met as a girlfriend or anybody, I just told them, I said, this is all my money goes to the animals. So if we're ever going to get married and have kids or do anything, you're income has to, to support the household. <laughs> That's the rules, I, man. I, yeah. I, them, yeah, that was a rule. Yeah. So I was able to, to get married and my wife had a good job and so we did have two boys and they grew up in doing this and, and so that was one of the early things that helped as well was that, that I had a, a, a spouse that was able to support the family while I was doing all the sanctuary. All my money went to that. 
That's great. Well, we're unfortunately sort of near the end of our time. I want to get this caller okay. that's been holding for a while and ask a few more questions of my own before we uh, do run out of time. Sure. So, hi, you're on Talking Animals with Patrick Craig. Yeah, this is Sister Kelly. This gentleman is a saint. He is a saint, a living saint. Please write a book about your whole beginnings. I have grandchildren that care and love animals, and I just bless you. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Wow, well, that's thank very you. nice. Thank you for your call. Yeah, and, and while we're at it, I should uh, mention that the, the website is wildanimalsanctuary.org. We can find out more and, of course, uh, help out one way or another, for instance, in, in supporting uh, Patrick and the Wild Animal Sanctuary. So sort of, I guess, in a more condensed fashion, than I, I imagine, but but I kind of want to talk about how some of those animals come there. I mean, people that, for better or worse, via the Tiger King, many of us uh, who didn't otherwise know much about this kind of have a solid idea of the commercial enterprises revolving around tigers, particularly cubs, that eventually lead to dozens and then, you know, really hundreds of tigers that suddenly that are grown, need a home, can't generate the dokes, they're not as cute anymore, whatever. So we got a sense of that for one way or the other in the Tiger King. And not coincidentally, a large group of tigers from Joe Exotic's zoo, and I am making air quotes, even though it's hard to see on the radio. Sure. Uh, so, um, so... We can maybe come back to that, although that story is probably, again, more, more understood even, even before Tiger King by a lot of people that would be listening to the show. But what's maybe probably less obvious to some is like where, at least just with a few specific examples, like where do the lions come from by comparison or the bears or some of the other animals that uh, also you've rescued at the Wild Animal Sanctuary over the years? Right. Well, that's just it. Over the 40 years, there's been shifts in animals. So in the early years, there was a lot of people that were getting these as pets, you know, because it was a brand new thing that people could buy a tiger or a lion as a pet. And so most of our animals early on were a mixture of mountain lions and tigers and lions, and we didn't see bears very often, but it was mostly the cats that people were trying to have in their backyard or in their house or wherever. And so we would get calls from sheriffs and law enforcement and city police that found one in a garage or apartment or basement. Or, and so we were running around doing that primarily. But eventually you started to see these giant trends where people that were becoming big breeders, somewhat like Joe was, would focus on something. And so there was this whole you know 10-year period where we were going to Texas just constantly because Texas was cranking out tigers like nobody's business. I mean, it was the first big wave of tigers in the United States were really coming mostly out of Texas because of the, there was no laws down there and people really wanted to breed and commercialize animals and so we were just constantly getting called by humane societies and sheriffs and everybody down in texas um, so there was this giant wave of tigers for about 10 years and then we started to see when the u.s fish and wildlife was starting to realize this was a problem and and started to kind of crack down on some of the, the bigger offenders then people started to shift to breeding lions and because nobody seemed to care about lions and so then we were rescuing lots of lions from all over the United States. And, and then eventually, about 10 years ago, we started to see a giant upswing in bears um, from bear parks and all sorts of places where, and so it's kind of mm. one of those things where I think a lot of the breeders react to the pressure and shift to something. Right, to something else. Yeah. Yeah. And, until that so taps keep, out. Yeah. So we just yeah. keep seeing these general shifts all the time. We still rescue lions and tigers and, you know, whatever the other animals are, but there's always this major change in the species. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's a lion that's been barking in the background. Am I correct? <laughs> yeah. yeah. We, have, we have 13 dogs that are here at the office. Wow. Okay. They, they follow me everywhere I go, so I've been trying to walk around 
No, that's so great. Heck, the show's called Talking Animals, so if there was ever a time it was appropriate to hear from uh, one or more of 13 dogs, this is this is the time. So we're really sort of just tapped out on time, uh, Pat, but sure. one thing I did want to ask about, among others, that maybe we'll have you back on again to cover more ground and have other people ask more questions sure. as well. But one thing that, among others, that really distinguishes the Wild Animal Sanctuary is the Mile in the Wild. Can you just talk about that for a, for a moment? I mean, first of all, yeah. uh, well, I guess we've, I said in the introduction that sort of a elevated walkway which doesn't really do it justice right. but i mean i guess chiefly i'd be interested to know how the idea came about and was the fir- right. was the person who suggested and initially kind of dismissed as a kook or was it like immediately embraced no i'm i'm the kook i'm the resident kook. okay well it's not i mean we, we found that from the get-go from when you were 19 right to this moment you're the best kind of kook we can have in the animal world though that's for sure yeah well definitely i mean we weren't open to the public for the first 20 years we were just rescuing and given the animals great home and we had no desire to be open to the public we but education we knew was critical and so early on we were going around doing presentations not with live animals but just going and talking to you know um, um, chambers of commerce and anybody that would listen to the problem because i realized that you know without people knowing that there were all these captive wildlife um, being bred and sold and how the problem was getting worse. And so education was really critical. Um, and I think all centuries realized that pretty early on that, that you got to try to solve the problem so that you eventually go out of business because there really shouldn't be this problem. And so that's been our goal ever ever since the beginning. But um, we realized we weren't making a dent. I mean, just running around talking to 30 people at a time was, it just seemed pointless. It was like we're not getting anywhere. Um, so everybody from day one had always said, oh, you should open to the public. But they had the intention of just doing it because it was cool to see. And I was like, no, I would, the only reason I would ever do it would be for education. And I know we could educate way more people being right outside of Denver with, you know, three and a half million people, four million people. Sure. If we open, but... I also know exactly why animals in the zoo feel that pressure is because people are on the ground level and they're they're a threat to their territory when they walk up to their cages. Um, and so that's when the animals feel that pressure of all these strangers. And you could even see it when we were closed to the public. If somebody came to, to see what we were doing, the animals immediately are like, who's that? That's a stranger. I'm a, you know, and they would watch that person and be afraid of that person because they're, they don't know them. And so we said, well, if we're ever going to be open to the public, we got to find a way to not have pressure on the animals. And way back in the very beginning when I was building my first facility, I realized that every time I was up on a rooftop hammering or nailing or, or sawing or doing anything, I would always watch the animals because I didn't want to scare them. And I always realized that they could really care less, no matter how loud it was or what kind of crazy chainsaw I ran or whatever. If I wasn't on ground level, they were totally disconnected and wouldn't even care. But if I was on ground level, then they would be 100% focused. And so he said, if we're ever going to open to the public, we're going to have to build an elevated system of walkways and observation decks. And of course, nobody could fathom what I was talking about in the sense of this was a huge 700, 800 acre facility and this walkway would, you know, go over all these different habitats. And so it ended up, I had to build the first, you know, 50 to 100 yards just to kind of make a visual representation to people. And so all the the board of directors and the supporters and everybody's like, oh, well, this works really great. And, you know, we we tested it by letting a couple of people come and visit and the animals didn't pay attention at all to them. And Mm -hmm. we said, okay, this, this is the right answer. 
now we have to build much more of it. So yeah. <laughs> over a few year period, we ended up building a mile and a half, which ended up becoming the world's longest elevated footbridge. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's yeah. quite impressive, and just uh, photos I've seen of it, it's like really, it's really cool because, like you say, there's no visual or other way to disturb the animals, and yet the no. the vantage point is great, and everybody's safe. And um, anyway, it just seems yeah. really cool. And, and, yeah. That worked out really well. Yeah. So, Pat, we uh, have reached the end of our time, but I've been speaking with Patrick Craig, again, the founder of the Wild Animal Sanctuary. The website is wildanimalsanctuary.org. So, Patrick, uh, gosh, thanks for all you've done for animals over 40 years, and and you're still obviously going strong and probably coming up with more cool uh, ideas of how to uh, <laughs> how to keep them happy and thriving and uh, doing well. So, thank you so much. Well, thank you. It was, it was a real pleasure to be on the show. I appreciate your time yeah. and commitment for this. Absolutely. Thank you, sir. Bye. Bye-bye. In a moment, I'll speak with Karen Ankerstar, who will be underscoring the importance of adopting versus shopping when adding an animal to your household. Right now, though, we're going to step into the comedy corner with a comic who's a talking animal's fave and a piece that's directly relevant to part of our conversation with Patrick Craig. This is Nate Bargatze with a piece whose long title I've reduced down to Consider a Tiger in today's comedy corner on Talking Animals on WMNF. They did a thing on 60 Minutes about, like, do you know you can buy a tiger here? Like, in this, like if you guys want to buy a tiger tonight, uh, I could get you in touch with someone that does have tigers. I don't know if I can. It's a real, you can buy a tiger here in the U.S. Uh, they did an undercover, like, reporting on it. And uh, my favorite part was they asked the guy that sells tigers, they were like, so do you think it's, like, too easy to buy a tiger in this country? And the guy was like, yeah. Yeah, it's like, it's way too easy. And you know what? That's why America's the best, all right? I didn't even know you could buy tigers. Like, I would have been embarrassed to ask. And then I come and find out, I don't really have to jump through hoops if I do want to buy a tiger. It's not an all-day thing. It's like an hour. I'll be right back with our tiger. And everybody wants to take away guns, you know? It's like, we gotta get everybody's guns. But then that makes me nervous, because I think if you take away guns from people, those are the exact same people that will buy tigers. And that's a much bigger problem, all right? Like, you're probably gonna be like, look, here's your gun back. And they're like, no, I'm good, dude. My tiger is way better than my gun. My gun missed all the time. My, my tiger rarely misses. Even if he does miss, it's just for a second, you know? Like, it's never... Like the guy dodges, he's like, you dumb tiger mist. It's like, I mean, it did not. It is right behind you now. And yeah, he's pissed about it. So. That was Nate Bargatze with a piece I'm calling Consider a Tiger, taken from one of his television appearances. Now it's time to speak with Karen Ankerstar, addressing why Adopt, Don't Shop is far more than just a snappy motto. This is Karen Ankerstar on Talking Animals on WM. Good morning, Karen. Good morning, Duncan. Thanks for having me. Thanks for uh, joining us again on the show. So let's jump right in. How did you become interested in, in particular in the issue of buying animals at pet stores and sort of alerting people to why there are all kinds of downsides to doing so? Well, to make it real quick, maybe 12 or 15 years ago, I didn't know what a puppy mill was. I walked by, drove by a Petland protest and asked the protesters what was going on. They said they buy it from puppy mills. And I said, well, I'm going to check that out. And I spent many a night researching it. And, and sure enough, Petland and, and almost every pet store that sells puppies or kittens do buy it from puppy mills. That's the only place they can get them. So after a lot of uh, crying over my keyboard, 
I decided I had to do something. So I started with um, Sarasota County to get them to pass an ordinance where pet stores cannot sell puppies and kittens. And took about four years, I got that passed. Right. And then uh, where else have you helped get that kind of ordinance? Um, I went on to um, DeSoto County. Right. And they have a, a full ordinance like that. Um, we got St. Pete done. And then recently, um, I was instrumental in getting Hillsborough County yeah. ordinance passed. That's so good. Yeah. And um, what is the impact of these ordinances? I mean, is it to what extent is it quantifiable? Let me put it that way. When when once an ordinance like this does go into effect. Well, they give them a certain amount of time to either go humane, as we call it, um, or go away. Um, And most of these stores can sell pet supplies and still make a living. For example, the Petland in Sarasota store that they vacated, um, unfortunately moved to Manatee County, but I'm after them next, Mm. Um, is now a pet supply store by another company, and it's thriving. So that's what we're asking them to do. They do not have to sell puppies and kittens um, to thrive, and there's certainly a lot of money in it. They buy these puppies for an average of $100 to $200 from horrific puppy mills, and the average sale price is $3,000. But what I really want people to know is they do come from puppy mills, which are factory farm puppies that are worse than the factory farms for the food animals, um, you know, pigs and cows and chickens, because at least those animals have to be healthy enough to eat. The mother and father dogs that are left behind in these puppy mills, and some of them have up to 1,500 dogs, are just breeding machines and small fire grate floor cages, and they're just there their entire lives. That's basically enough just to keep them alive so they can breed. Yeah, so we only have just about another maybe 20 seconds or so, Karen, but what what would you say in the most succinct terms is kind of besides the, the effect of the animals that are being used to breed these puppies like what are what, what's the worst some of the worst things that can happen if you you know inadvertently get a uh, an animal that's come from a puppy mill what might await you that way well for example the petland in bradenton just a couple of weeks ago it was selling puppies and i know of one in particular that had parvovirus which then the puppy died two days later so these people are stuck with uh, thousands of dollars of a veterinary bill oh, and geez. the cost of the puppy um and then there's this campylobacter virus that even affected a worker at Sarasota Petland, and she's in a wheelchair. Yikes. And um, they know where these diseases are coming from and continue to buy from these puppy mills because okay. they have the dogs at the price. Karen, I'm so sorry we're out of time, but we'll speak again. Okay. Thank you.